we now finally, after years of Paul being held by the previous governor, he is about to receive a trial. Chapter 25 of the book of Acts. Those of you that are new, uh, you can ask questions by emailing info at rsafeharbor.com. You can also ask to be a member uh, by using the same email. And all we need is your name, address, contact info, and we put you on the membership list. If you can give to support us, that's fantastic. We do rely on that. But if you can't, we get that. We understand. So either way, we're just glad that you're with us on this trip. And what a trip it's been in the book of Acts. And now chapter 25, three days after arriving in the province, Festus, that's the new guy, went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem where the chief priests and Jewish leaders appeared before him and presented their charges against Paul. This has now been ongoing for over two years. <clears throat> they requested Festus as a favor to them to have Paul transferred to Jerusalem for they were preparing an ambush to kill him along the way. The same plot that failed more than two years ago. They're not giving up on it yet. Although I dare to say that the 40 men who had promised not to eat or drink had gone back on that vow over the two-year period. Moving on, <coughs> Festus answered, Paul's being held at Caesarea. I myself am going there soon. Let some of your leaders come with me, and if the man has done anything wrong, they can press charges against him there. After spending eight or ten days with them, and that's interesting, eight or ten, because normally we would say eight or nine, or nine and ten. Well, Luke, who's writing this, is a very precise historian, and therefore he's gotten two different numbers from people. And so he puts in both numbers rather than trying to guess at a number. It's, it's a very classy move uh, by somebody that has principles. All right. Uh, Festus went down to Caesarea. The next day he convened the court and ordered that Paul be brought before him. When Paul came in, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him. They brought many serious charges against him, but they couldn't prove them. Then Paul made his defense. Paul says, I have done nothing wrong against the Jewish law, or against the temple, or against Caesar. Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, because once again, if you kept the peace, you kept your huge income as a Roman governor. If you didn't, then you're off. Same, the same reason Pilate washed his hands and let them crucify Jesus, because to him, he would lose his job if he allowed this to continue, so he did a favor. All right, that, and it's not a favor to the Jews because the Jews always do this. It's every governor did this no matter where they were governor over, whether it was Gaul or whether it was North Africa. This is the way governors acted. Wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me there on these charges? And Paul finally does what he's had a right to do from day one and it's going to end the proceedings. It's going to move them radically. Paul answered, I am now standing before Caesar's court where I ought to be tried. I've done nothing wrong to the Jews, as you yourself know very well. If, however, I am guilty of doing anything deserving death, I do not refuse to die. But if the charges brought against me by these Jews are not true, no one has the right to hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. Boom. There's not a thing Festus can do. 
Not a thing Felix could have done before him. Not a thing anybody can do. Paul has just pulled the, I am a born high-ranking Roman citizen. I appeal to Caesar. After Festus had conferred with his council, he declared, you've appealed to Caesar, so to Caesar you will go. A few days later, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea to pay their respects to Festus. Since they were spending many days there, Festus discussed Paul's case with the king. He said, there's a man here whom Felix left as a prisoner. When I went to Jerusalem, the chief priest and elders of the Jews brought charges against him and asked that he be condemned. I told him it's not the Roman custom to hand over anyone before they face their accusers and have had an opportunity to defend themselves against the charges. Completely not true. It's only true of a Roman citizen that they would give them that right. But these are politicians. When they came here with me, I did not delay the case, but convened the court the next day and ordered the man to be brought in. When his accusers got up to speak, they didn't charge him with any of the crimes I had expected. Instead, they had some points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a dead man named Jesus who Paul claimed was alive. I was at a loss how to investigate such matters. So I asked if he'd be willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial there on these charges. But when Paul made his appeal to be held over for the emperor's decision, I ordered him held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I'd like to hear this man myself. And Festus said, so tomorrow you will hear him. The next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and entered the audience room with the high-ranking military officers and the prominent men of the city. <clears throat> At the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man. It reminds me so much of Pilate saying, behold the man. This was the way Roman governors behaved. The whole Jewish community has petitioned me about him in Jerusalem and here in Caesarea, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. Well, again, it wasn't the whole community, but okay. I found he'd done nothing wrong deserving of death, but because he made his appeal to the emperor, I decided to send him to Rome. Now, this is a very definite weasel passage. And this weasel named Festus is saying, you know, I thought he was innocent, but he... He insisted on going to Caesar, so he's got to go to Caesar. That's not the way it happened, but this is the way people act. Sorry. I have nothing definite to write to His Majesty about him. Therefore, I brought him before all of you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that as a result of this investigation, I may have something to write. For I think it unreasonable to send a prisoner on to Rome without specifying the charges against him. So he leaped down to chapter 26. Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motioned with his hand and began his defense. I have no idea what the motioning, what it was or what it signified. You know, like, yes, I get to talk or, eh, okay. I have no idea. It's just, it's one of those things that Luke assumed everybody knew and we don't. So Paul motioned with his hand, began his defense. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews, and especially so, because you're well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. The Jewish people all know the way I've lived ever since I was a child, from the beginning of my life in my own country and then also in Jerusalem. 
They have known me for a long time and can testify, if they're willing, that I conform to the strictest sect of our religion, living as a Pharisee. And now it's because of my hope in what God has promised our ancestors that I'm on trial today. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. King Agrippa, it is because of this hope that these Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? See, all of these people believed in, in many gods. So, um, and their God's stories, their myths, certainly there were resurrections from the dead. So he said, why would anybody find that to be extraordinary? He goes on, I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that's just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priest, you know, those guys that are now, you know, I put many of the Lord's people in prison, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time, I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I, I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest. About noon, here's the third time we're going to hear this story. King Agrippa, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Is it hard for you to kick against the goads? A goad is a sharpened stick one uses to drive a stubborn mule forward. Then I asked, who, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you've seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I'm sending you to them to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and in all Judea, then to the Gentiles, I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. That is why some Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But God has helped me to this very day, so I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Messiah would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead, would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. He said, you're out of your mind, Paul. He shouted, your great learning is driving you insane. I'm not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things and I can speak freely to him. I'm convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, short time, <laughs> I love this, short time or long. I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. The king rose and with him the governor and Bernice and those sitting with them. After they'd left the room, they began saying to one another, 
this man's not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment. Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he'd not appealed to Caesar. But could he have? Yes, but only set free to be murdered, ambushed. So was it right? Um, was it the smartest thing for Paul to appeal to Caesar? I'm not sure that he had much choice at that stage. I think he had to. Because he did, though, these guys are able just to pass the buck, which, by the way, was not strictly necessary. They had the ability to um, issue edicts and saying this man has protection and a light, but they just, they really just didn't want the problem and they had a reason now not to have it. So they passed him on. It's rather like uh, politicians that will vote for an incredibly expensive bill that will never be paid back because it'll be their great grandkids that have to pay the bill and they're not gonna be around, so they just pass it forward. It is like somebody who builds a plant that pollutes the earth or the water or the air with noxious chemicals and not worries about it because by the time people sort it out and he's fine, they're gonna make billions of dollars and they can just move on and they don't care about the people ahead. We, this is not just a politician problem, this is a human problem to pass it forward. I was listening to the radio yesterday and there are certain radio commercials that are far more annoying than others. And this was the first one, but it was a cash for cars thing that was not uh, one of these that if you donate your car, you get a tax write-off. But no, it was saying, you know, you can get your cash right now up to $750. Just answer these questions and you can get your cash right now. And you have this person going, my cash right now, it's so happy. It's not your cash, it's a loan at an exorbitant rate of interest. 20 times what the real interest rate should be. It'll never be paid off. You will pay a couple of thousand dollars trying to pay it off. And then they'll be able to take what they want from you. But they're doing it as if this is your cash, it's not yours. If you don't have the money for it now to pay for whatever, what makes you think you're gonna have that money to pay for it later when it's more expensive? But people kick it down the road. They kick it down the road. Well, Paul now has to go to Rome. So he goes to Rome, chapter 27. When it was decided that we, so Luke is with him, would sail for Italy, Paul and some other prisoners who were handed over to a centurion named Julius, who belonged to the Imperial Regiment, we boarded a ship from Idramentium to sail for, to, about to sail for ports along the coast of the province of Asia. We set out to see Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica was with us. We've met him before. We met him back in Ephesus. The day next day, we landed at Sidon, and Julius, in kindness to Paul, allowed him to go with his friends so that they might provide for his needs. Um, we've talked about this before, but prisoners in many countries, even to this day, you're thrown into prison, but that doesn't mean that you're going to get food, toothpaste, clothing. If you don't have people that bring it, then you fight and knife and die trying to get it from other people. Um, when my wife and I were in Panama years ago, we went by the major prison in Panama, and it was at the right time of day to see families in a big long line. They had come so that they could take food to their family member in prison. So Paul had to have his needs taken care of from outside. And so that Julius was kind and he knew Paul was trustworthy, 
So he let him go, get his needs taken care of. Then from there we put out to sea again and passed to the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. When we had sailed across the open sea across, uh, off the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship heading for Italy and put us on board. We made slow headway for many days and had difficulty arriving off Nidus. When the wind did not allow us to hold our course, we sailed to the Lee of Crete opposite Salomone. When we moved along the coast with great difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens near the town of Lassia. Those of you that don't understand all the details here, you don't need to know the place names, you just need to know sailing in these ships, you are at the mercy of the winds and you could be trapped in the water for days and days and days and days and days, unable to get to shore, unable to make progress. Uh, of course, then storms could come and Paul had been shipwrecked many times. He understood how that worked. So this is, this is travel with great difficulty. There's no privacy. You are laying on an open deck. Um, your restroom is the point of the ship where you go out and there's a little board that you sit on. The, the food is whatever they catch and whatever rancid stuff is on the ship. It's not pleasant. Much time had been lost <coughs> and sailing had already become dangerous by now because it was after the Day of Atonement. It's just Yom Kippur. In other words, in that season, you're going to get a lot more storms. So they were entering their storm season. So Paul warned the men, <clears throat> I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to the ship and cargo and to our own lives also. But the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and of the owner of the ship. Since the harbor was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided we should sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. This is a harbor in Crete facing both northwest I'm sorry, southwest and northwest. <clears throat> when a gentle wind began to blow, they saw their opportunity. So they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force called the Nor'easter swept down from the island. Meteorologists would probably jump in here and be able to explain all of that. But no matter where I've lived, anything coming in from the northwest, northeast rather, is dangerous. We lived in Michigan, that's when your biggest snows would come. Lived in Colorado, that's when your biggest snows would come. Here in uh, Tennessee, although I'm actually on the road now in Washington State, uh, in Tennessee, uh, the Northeast is going to bring you more chances of tornadoes and just, no matter where you are, oh, and in Texas, they call them a blue norther. Anything coming in from the Northeast is gonna disrupt everything. So. Here it comes, swept, swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind. So we gave way to it and were driven along. As we passed to the lee of a small island called Cauda, we were barely able to make the lifeboat secure. So the men hoisted it aboard. Then they passed ropes under the ship to hold it together. The boards of the ship are starting to separate. And you can't recalk it because you're at sea. So they're throwing ropes over the ship which means, yes, somebody has to dive over, holding an end, swim under it, and come up the other side, almost like they were being keyholed, just to hold the ship together with ropes. Think of this. 
they, because they were afraid they would run aground on the sandbars of Sirtis, they lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. Um, it is not for sure in the manuscripts whether they lowered their sails, which I think more, pro more probable, or what they call a sea anchor, which is not the anchor that goes down and lodges in the, um, the floor of the sea to hold you fast, but rather slows the storm from blowing you further off course, more like a dragging weight. When um, we took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. These are the tools, the things that you keep the ship survivable in. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. After they'd gone a long time without food, Paul stood before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sell from Crete. Then you would have spared yourself this damage and loss. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Paul just did and I told you so. He did. But he goes further. But now I urge you to keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and to whom I serve stood beside me and said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we're going to run aground on some island. And they did. We will hit this part and try to get as far as we can on this. The 14th night, we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea. By the way, I've been in storms before at sea, and, and I get seasick. Uh, I get seasick if I'm not driving the car. I get motion sickness, and it's all part of the trigeminal neuralgia that I've got and, and that sets off migraines and motion, so I'm just a complete mess. I have no idea how I've survived this long. Um, and I'll, I'll take meclizine or I'll take uh, diphenhydramine or something. I can't do the scopolamine patch. We found out it makes me hallucinate. Long story there. Um, so those are off the table for me. And, uh, and no, I don't do the bands or the like. So anyway, I, I'm aware if you hit the right medication and you just go down and you don't move, in a day or so you're going to be fine. But that's not going to be true here. The smells of the men, the waste, the unwashed bodies, the tossing of the ship constantly battering and banging, no daylight, 14 days. Wow. This is just, this is hell. This is hell at sea. When about midnight, the sailors sense that they were approaching land. You do that by, uh, there's a different sound whenever the waves are hitting you and there is land somewhere. There's a different sound. And they took soundings, not related to sound. That's a, you, you drop down to figure out how, how much water is underneath your beam and found that the water was 120 feet deep. Well, that's, that's pretty good. Uh, those of you that are not in the United States, it's about 37 meters. That's, that's a good distance down. A short time later, they took soundings again and found it was 90 feet or about 27 meters. Fearing that they'd be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. In an attempt, um, by the way, that just tells me that the ship was being shoved forward 
from behind the stern. Therefore, they throw out the anchors because that's the way the wind is coming and they're trying to slow it, pushing them on the land. In an attempt uh, to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. In other words, hey guys, you just take care of those anchors over there. We're going to go up and take care of some anchors, wink, wink. And they look at each other. We're getting off this thing. We're going to leave the prisoners, leave the owners of the boat. We're going to leave all these people behind. Paul said to the centurion and his soldiers, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers ran forward and cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it drift away. Stay in now, buddy. Just, by the way, staying now, buddy, is not in the scripture. I do these little comments. Um, hope that's all right. Just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, you've been in constant suspense and gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. And again, that's human hyperbole. I'm sure that they snacked on something, um, but they'd not properly taken time to care for them, their bodies. Now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. After he'd said this, he took some bread, gave thanks to God in front of them all. Then he broke it and began to eat. They were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Altogether, there were 276 of us on board. This is a big, big boat. When they'd eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. When daylight came, they didn't recognize the land. But they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. Cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea. Why would you cut? Anchors get caught. And if there are rocks and coral or something under there and you can't pull them up, then you're, you're just stuck there. You'll starve to death. Actually, you'll die of thirst first. So they cut the ropes, um, the, the anchors, and left them in the sea and at the same time untied the ropes that held the rudders that was to keep them from spinning. They then hoisted the foresail to the wind and made for the beach. But the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. I lived for a very short time uh, in Elizabeth City, North Carolina, and it's very, very close to Cape Hatteras, Kill Devil Hills, and that stretch of land. And that area is called the Graveyard of the Atlantic because of sudden sandbars, sudden storms, there are a lot of ships' ruins. In fact, you can just be walking along the beach, take a corner, and then here's a ship from the 1800s sitting on the beach in ruins. Uh, it'll be washed away another day, but today it's up. It's amazing. The bow stuck fast and would not move, and the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. There's so many things about ships I love. I just, I'm, I'm, I love ships. I love boats, um, and I. Yes, I get seasick, but it doesn't matter. You know, I, I, I love them. I'd love to talk about all this in more detail, but we're coming up on our 30 minutes and we don't want to um, be spending our time chasing rabbits, do we? The soldiers plan to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping because you see, killing them, there's no penalty. If they escaped, then they were under a death penalty. But the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land. <clears throat> the rest were to get there on planks and on other pieces of the ship. In this way, everybody reached land safely. We're going to charge ahead here in chapter 28 and just do the first 10 verses. Once safely on shore, we found out that the island was called Malta. 
The islanders showed us unusual kindness. They built a fire and welcomed us all because it was raining and cold. Paul gathered a pile of brushwood, and as he put it on the fire, a viper, driven out by the heat, fastened itself on his hand. <clears throat> when the islanders saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said to each other, This man must be a murderer, for though he escaped from the sea, the goddess Justice has not allowed him to live. But Paul shook the snake off into the fire and suffered no ill effects. The people expected him to swell up or suddenly fall dead, but after waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and said he was a god. Again, I think we can all understand that this is the same concept of karma. Um, karma is a, uh, a doctrine from the devil. It is not from God. The idea that the universe has to balance itself out and that if you've escaped the sea that was trying to kill you because you were guilty, now karma has to send a, a, a snake to kill you. That's not the way the universe works. And God has tried to make that very plain to us, but people still do this karma nonsense. Um, but I, I like the fact that after all of this, Paul wasn't too big, too old, too important to go out and gather up brushwood like all the others. Go to work, pitch in, and the snake bites him. And we don't hear about Paul, you know, cursing the snake or he just shook it off in the fire. Um, and then everybody's sitting around just kind of waiting for him to die, swell up and die, and he doesn't do it. A little humor there. <clears throat> there was an estate nearby <clears throat> that belonged to Publius, the chief official of the island. He welcomed us to his home, showed us generous hospitality for three days. His father was sick in bed, suffering from fever and dysentery. For those of you in America, dysentery. Paul went in to see him, and after prayer, placed his hands on him and healed him. When this had happened, the rest of the sick on the island came and were cured. They honored us in many ways, and when we were ready to sail, they furnished us with the supplies we needed. Well, I hate to end at this point, but we are at our 30, and we've been trying now for the last few months a different thing, to shorten these from 45 minutes to 30, because we know it's a long time to listen to a podcast or to watch a video each week. We hope you enjoy these. If you are a church or a house church that are using these, would you just let us know? It is fine. There are no copyrights on this and you do not owe us a penny. This week, actually, we got a couple of checks from churches that we'd never heard of that were watching this and just decided to give us some money. And they weren't big checks, but we know that must have been a sacrifice for them and it really touched us. So again, you don't have to give us any money for this. We're just encouraged to know people are using them. So if you're using this in your family devotions, in your house church, in your church, um, we, we'd love to know. So just write me, patrick at rsafeharbor.com. Have a fantastic week, and we will see you next week as we finish Acts and launch into the next book, written in order. That's the order in which these books were written. And that'll be First Timothy, and that should be a lot of fun. We'll see you then. Cheers.